Okay. Um, Worship, chapter 51, worship. We've been going through this whole unit on the doctrine of the church. We talked about what is a church and church government. We talked about baptism and the Lord's Supper, which have to do with things in the church. And now we're going to talk about worship, and then the next two or three weeks after that will be um, spiritual gifts. So here, oops, there we go. Uh, Tentative schedule. So worship today, and then spiritual gifts next week, general questions, and then the question of have some gifts ceased, and then uh, specific spiritual gifts over the next couple weeks after that. So uh, that's where we're headed. And I just appreciate sometimes, uh, from time to time you think to pray for me. I plan to go visit my parents uh, leave Thursday and come back Saturday. They're in Orlando, and they're both 91, um, older and weaker, um, but uh, still mentally very alert, and uh, so I'm thankful for that and hope to have a good time seeing them. Oh, yeah, this is the new president of Uganda, uh, no, of Ghana, uh, doctor, he's an he's a economics professor, uh, Dr. John Atta, A-T-T-A, at his inauguration ceremony on Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, holding up a Bible. And can you see what it says there? English Standard Version. I thought that was quite nice. Um, and the British and Foreign Bible Society, has been, which has worldwide influence, has been um, uh, promoting the ESV. They like it very much. They like its accuracy, its word-for-word literalness. So... There it is at the inauguration of the new president of Ghana. Okay, definition and purpose of worship. Worship is the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and our hearts. Now, in a way, our whole life is supposed to be worship, isn't it? Uh, Because uh, Paul says in Romans 12, uh, present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so all day long, going to the grocery store, going to work, or um, just taking care of things around the house, or um, interacting with family and friends, I mean, all of, all of those things are supposed to be worship because we're supposed to be glorifying God in all of those But the New Testament sometimes uses the word worship in a more narrow sense, having to do with, um, oh, Acts 13.1, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, Acts 13.1 or 2. That is a specific time when the church was coming together to focus on giving glory to God. And so there's a broad sense in which all of life is worship, but there's a narrow sense in which there are services of worship. And uh, when we come together to worship, we talk about glorifying God in his presence. That is, we have a special... God is, of course, everywhere present, but there's a special sense of God's presence when his people gather together. And so uh, we do that with our voices, we sing, and with our hearts, because we shouldn't be doing this with only our lips and not really meaning it in our hearts, because, of course, God looks on our hearts. So that's the overall view of um, worship. Worship is something we do especially when we come into God's presence, when we're conscious of adoration of him in our hearts, and when we praise him with our voices so that others may hear. You know, again, uh, Margaret and I were in the first service um, with that wonderful message by Dave Dravecki, but I was thinking of the musical part of the worship service 
before the message this morning, and it really makes a difference when I remember in my mind to think I'm in the presence of God. And don't think about, oh, is this congregation very full or not yet? You know, oh, there's my friend, and you know, all, all that stuff kind of you can get distracted. And um, but if we if we will discipline our minds to to say to ourselves and say in our hearts, Lord, I want to be in your presence. This I want to focus on you. Then it really does have an impact on worship, on our experience of worship. I think I think it makes it a much more meaningful time. So we're conscious of adoration of him in our hearts. So Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So this, Paul was encouraging the Colossians to, when they, when they were getting together, to sing with thankfulness in their hearts to God. Now why does God want us to come together to worship? The primary reason is, uh, the primary reason that God called us into the assembly of the church is that as a corporate assembly, we might worship him. It's very interesting. When God first called a group of people to himself from the people of Israel, he called them to come into the wilderness and come before him at Mount Sinai that they might worship him. So, Exodus 7:16, you shall say to him, to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go. So that they can be free of slavery? No. Let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. Isn't that interesting? God wants to assemble a people before himself who would be a worshiping people. And uh, here's a quotation from Edmund Clowney. Uh, Clowney was president of Westminster Seminary when I went there as a student a number of years ago. And and, uh, and Dr. Clowney has now gone to be with the Lord. But he, he had a lot of uh, wisdom on the matter of worship. And he said this, it, I, I quoted it because I thought it was so helpful. God's assembly at Sinai is therefore the immediate goal of the Exodus. God brings his people into his presence that they might hear his voice. Of course, he gave the Ten Commandments. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me in Exodus 20 that they might hear his voice and worship him. And so God wanted to bring these people before him to worship. But rather than worshiping God in a unified holy assembly and doing that periodically throughout the year, uh, people turned aside to serving idols. And so rather than assembling the people before him to worship him, in judgment, uh, this is now jumping forward to 586 B.C., God scattered the people in exile. So what, what happened? Did God's purpose fail? God's purpose for, getting a, for gathering a people to himself to come before him to worship? And, and, it, and of course, it was fulfilled in part when, throughout the, the Old Testament when there were festivals three times a year. Everybody's supposed to gather before the Lord at a certain place and ended up being Jerusalem eventually where they were to gather in his presence and worship. And they did that for a time, but they rebelled against him and sinned more and more, and eventually he scattered them. Oh no, has God's purpose failed in which he would get a people gathered together to worship him? No, because Clowney goes on to say, God promised that his purposes for his people would yet be fulfilled. 
And there would someday be a great assembly, not just of Israel, but of all nations before his throne. And so look at this prophecy at the end of Isaiah. I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations. Now listen to this. To Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away. Where, where are those places? Well, um, I actually looked at the note in the ESV Study Bible. <laughs> Which, I don't know if Ray Ortland, my friend, wrote this part of it, or I wrote it. But anyway, I couldn't remember. But Tarshish is Spain, modern day Spain. Pull doesn't occur anywhere else in ancient literature. Nobody's quite sure what it means, but it might be a variant spelling of put, P-U-T. Well, you say, so what? Uh, um, uh, but put is um, ancient Libya, which is on the map of Africa. You have Egypt in the, in, the, in the north of Africa, and then just to the west of Egypt would be Libya. So Spain... If you get the Mediterranean, if this, if this paragraph is the Mediterranean world, you have Spain way over on this side, above the Mediterranean, and then Libya in North Africa on the other side of it. And Lud and Tubal are in, now in modern Turkey. So you get Spain, Libya, and then way over to this corner, modern Turkey. And Javan, that's Greece, over to this side. And, of course, speaking uh, to the people who were in Israel, so Israel, Turkey, Greece, Spain... Libya? What is that? That's the entire civilized world, the entire known world at that time. It's all the nations. And God is saying, I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. So there's a prediction uh, that the, that the uh, out of the remnant of the people of Israel will come faithful witnesses who will declare God's glory among the nations. And, and what will happen then, of course, eventually this is leading forward. I haven't gone into detail on the outline. It's leading forward to the assembly then that's, that's going to come at Pentecost where there are people from all nations in Jerusalem and they begin to glorify God and speak in tongues and to, to declare the marvelous works of God and, and thousands were converted and then they begin to worship God daily in the temple and, and as they're there, they're beginning to come and fulfill the purpose of God that he would have an assembly of, of uh, people worshiping him. And of course, that is yet looking forward to the great assembly of God's people from every, in heaven, from every tribe and nation and people and tongue whom no one can count, no one can number, um, who will gather before the throne of God and offer him worship. So God's purpose didn't fail. And when we gather together to worship in a small group or as a church, we are anticipating or building toward that great future that will come about uh, that God has promised. And so if we come into church on Sunday morning and we think that we're part of the plan that God had when he started to gather the people together at Mount Sinai, we're fulfilling, we're following the steps of the assembly that came from various nations in Jerusalem at Pentecost, and we're fulfilling God's plan to have the gospel go to all nations. 
And then we're anticipating the great assembly in heaven when every tribe and nation and people and tongue and people from all languages will be worshiping God. That puts us in a, in a wonderful context, a historical context, and shows that God has designed this to enable us to bring about his purpose for creating us, that we would glorify him. So um, worship, then, is a direct expression of our ultimate purpose for living, to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. This is that famous phrase from the Westminster Confession of Faith in the 1640s in, in England, to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. We glorify him and there's joy in that, a joy like no other joy. Isaiah 43, 6-7, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God created us for his glory. And Ephesians 1.12, that we might be, uh, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I'll go to the next point and then and pause for a minute. God is worthy of worship, and we are not. So when we say he created us in order we might honor him and glorify him, I think there's something deep within us that has an instinct that we want God to be glorified. We want him to be honored and not ourselves. In fact, uh, in Revelation 22, 8 to 9, John is caught up into heaven. He sees this mighty, amazing, angelic creature and he falls down, uh, kind of in instinctively falls down at the feet of the angel. And he said, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, uh, who keep the words of this book, worship God. And so uh, God is jealous of his own honor, and he rightly seeks his own honor. Exodus 20, verse 5, uh, he says in the Ten Commandments, don't make any graven image or carved image of anything. And don't bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God wants us to worship him, and if he sees people worshiping carved idols or anything else, he says, wait a minute, that worship belongs to me. He says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And he says, my glory I will not give to another. So, on the one hand, I want to say in point three, it's an amazing privilege to come into an assembly of God's people to be able to offer worship to God. And it brings us joy. But also, we have to be careful that everything in our worship services is designed and carried out not to call attention to ourselves and to bring glory to ourselves, but to call attention to God and cause people to think about him. And that is, I'll tell you, that's a challenge for anybody who preaches, me, students, other pastors, and it's a challenge for anybody who has a music ministry. And, and, the, and I've heard people who are really gifted worship leaders say, you want to strive for excellence in the quality of music, and you want that to be evident, that your music is excellent. But on the other hand, you want to give glory to God and not call attention to yourself. And, of course, in the entertainment industry, in the secular world, who gets the glory? The entertainer. It's all to, to draw attention to himself or herself. <clears throat> but, you know, I think that people can usually sense 
where a worship leader's heart is. If the worship leader wants to give glory to God and, and, and his or her heart is, um, is right with God. And the same way, <clears throat> the same way with preaching. If uh, somebody can be really gifted and skilled as a public speaker, but if he's seeking to kind of make everybody think how smart he is or how good a speaker he is or something, you can sense it um, fairly quickly, I think. And then, of course, that uh, hinders the purpose for worship and it distracts attention away from God. Um, so God is worthy of worship and we are not. Uh, when we come to talk about worship then, we're, in a way, we're talking about the central purpose for the whole universe. We're talking about the thing that is more meaningful than anything else in all of history, for all eternity, for everything that God has made everywhere. I mean, worship is is the purpose. Glorifying God is the purpose for which he's made everything, that it would glorify himself. That makes it exciting. It makes, it, it makes us think of it as a great privilege. I think it's a little bit frightening, too, lest we mess up and begin to take away glory from God. Now, I want to pause for a minute. Do you, do you want to react to that or interact with that at all? Yeah, Chantel, just get a microphone over here. I have a question about someone that would um, ask to be paid. To be paid? Yes. You mean like the person says, oh, please give me money? Yes. The person would um, perform a worship yeah. time yeah. and would ask for payment. <laughs> well... I don't think it's a good idea during the... I don't know what you're asking, so I better be careful here, but I don't think it's a good idea during the worship service to say, now, please... <laughs> but, but, but Paul says that those who minister the word should be uh, compensated by that. He, he didn't himself take pay. He gave, gave the gospel free of charge, but, but um, uh, let him who... Uh, is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. I mean, there's, there's things in, in, in Galatians and in First in First uh, Timothy five about people who whose full time work is in ministering the word. It's okay to be paid, and I, I think it's I think that also would apply to people who devote their full time to worship preparation. So we have people in the church who are full time uh, in the worship ministry of the church and. They're able to do that because the church pays them to do it. Uh, not all churches are big enough to do that, um, but I, I think it's, um, I think it's right. But if people start doing it for that reason or setting their heart on it, then, and it can go wrong. But in any in any line of work, if your only goal is to get money from it, the the business isn't going to go well. Or you're, I mean, if your goal is helping other people and being obedient to the Lord, then. That's putting first things first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Daryl. Is there any reference uh, in the Bible that says everybody should go to church on a Sabbath on a regular basis? <laughs> What's your name? Richard. Richard. Well, it says don't. It says in. Is, let me find the verse here in Hebrews four. Not neglecting the assembling of yourselves together. Where is that verse? What is it? Oh, yeah, 10, 24, and 25. I had it wrong. It was Hebrews. 
Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there is a requirement to meet together, and um, they were in the temple daily in the book of Acts, kind of a pattern, early in Acts. Um, And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16 that they are to set aside something on the first day of the week, which I think indicates they were meeting on the first day of the week. Oh, way in the back here. What's your name? Uh, I'm Daryl. Uh, regarding the payment... I, for, I didn't hear your name. Daryl. Daryl, yes. There's a lot of Daryls hanging around. Yeah. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, God set apart the Levites yes. to serve him, yeah. worship. And then he set up a plan for them to be right. compensated through yeah. tithes and offerings. Yeah, good. Thanks, Daryl. Okay, and then E.G., and then I'm going to go on because I've got another, a lot of outline left. Right here. Thank you. Uh, I have a friend who has a question about the practice of applauding in church services. <laughs> what would you? What is your feeling on that and your comments? I generally don't, um, but that's it, it, it's right on this issue. I I feel uncom- I feel uncomfortable with it. But um, it's not my decision to make. Um, and it seems to be increasing at Scottsdale Bible Church. Um, and I, never in my life have I ever heard anybody clap for a sermon before, like two or three years ago here. I'm not sure what happened. So, I mean, never, I, I was astounded. But anyway, I wasn't. Anyway, well, and it's a... Oh, man, how do we get into this? (laughs) If the clapping is, if it is an expression of praise to God, you find that in the Psalms. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God at the voice of triumph. Maybe Psalm 47 or so. Um, Then I have no problem with it. But, But if it's saying to the singer or the pastor, oh, I think you did a great job. That seems to me better expressed privately outside of the worship service than in the worship service. So I, but I'm in a bind because I'm sitting there, and if I don't clap, people think, oh, he must not like the sermon or the. So it's kind of a, I'm not sure. <laughs> then I, I'm not sure what quite to do about it. Go, go ahead. I've noticed in some congregations, I grew up in the South a lot, and there people would regularly shout amen, or they would say, right on, brother. And then I've noticed in other parts of the country, a clap is the way that people express their amen. So I kind of of see both sides, but it's still not verbal, so you don't know what's going on. Yeah, and see, I, I think people mean well by it. They mean thank you, and I appreciated that. I think that's the meaning. But I'm just wondering if it isn't distracting from the purpose. And how do visitors feel about it? Well, they're they're probably the ones that are clapping. I don't. Know. <laughs> I I don't. I think we should go on. I just gave you my opinion. It's it's not a major thing, but the here is the guideline. It's 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Let all things be done for building up. Okay? And and what is 
Let me see. Yeah, let all, that's Paul's guideline for worship. Let all things be done for building up, or let all be done to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So, um, is it done to the glory of God? Is it edifying for the congregation? Those are the two questions that would determine it. And I, it's not my, not my decision to make. But, oh well. <laughs> okay, I'll try to resolve not to clap anymore for a while now. Because I, I just felt kind of like I had to, so that people wouldn't look and think, oh, he's, he didn't like that sermon or something. And I, yeah, all right. I'm not going to say anything more. The results of genuine worship. We delight in God, number one, when we come into his presence. And I'm, I think you know, the whole worship service, the offering, the announcements, the sermon, and every, welcoming, all that. But I'm focusing particularly on singing right now, the musical part. We delight in God. And um, we, you make known to be the path of life, says Psalm 1611. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I, I felt that um, in some measure this morning, the first uh, two or three songs of the worship service in the first service, I was thinking, I hope this doesn't stop. And then we had to stop and go on to, you know, other stuff, which was, ne- you know, announcements are necessary, but I would have liked another two or three songs because there was such joy that I was feeling in the Lord's presence. And um, I don't know how quite to do that, but that's the attitude we should have, that, that it's just a, a great joy of delighting in God, of having this sense in our hearts, Psalm 73:25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That is really good for us, to be in God's presence amidst his people and delight in him and And uh, what does that old song say? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I think that happens. When we're in God's presence, we're worshiping, genuinely worshiping, then everything else takes on less importance, and we put things in right perspective. The things of earth grow strangely dim. It's good for us. It orients us spiritually toward focusing on God and delighting in him. In fact, in Luke 24, 52 to 53, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. This is after Jesus ascended into heaven. And we're continually in the temple blessing God. Why? Because there is a requirement, you've got to go to the temple every day. No, you couldn't keep them away because the sense of joy in God's presence was so strong. That's all they wanted to do. And probably at some point every day, they were there in the temple. And you read about revivals, and what happens is, all of a sudden, the church is packed seven nights a week, and people don't want to stand there singing for an hour. Why? Because there's such a joy in God's presence, you can't keep, can't keep people away. That happens. So we delight in God. There's joy in worship when it's real. And I think we should let ourselves feel that and, and, and be caught up in it. Second, amazingly, God delights in us. There are passages that talk about God delighting in his people and taking pleasure in his people when they are faithful to him. And I think that especially is true when we're offering him worship. So Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. And so God delights in us. God is actually rejoicing over us. Does God feel joy? Yes. And then, rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's an amazing prophecy that Zephaniah is giving, saying God himself is going to be so joyful at his people that he's going to start singing. Oh, God singing? Who who invented music? 
Who gave us vocal cords? Who gave us words, language? He's the God who speaks. Can't he sing? Yes. And Isaiah 62, 1 to 5, I won't read the whole passage now, but it, it gives another image. It says, God re- will rejoice over you, your, his people, like a bridegroom rejoices over a bride. Bridegroom rejoices over a bride with great, great joy, great delight. So we take delight in God and he delights in us. And then we we draw near to God. This is the amazing reality of new covenant worship. In the old covenant, people were separated from God. They could only come into the courtyard and then to a certain point in offering sacrifices and the priest would take the sacrifice and only the priest could go into the uh, holy place in the temple, the first room in the temple. Um, day after day, a priest would go in there um, uh, fulfilling his priestly duties. But into the holy place the Holy of Holies, the, the, the inner room of the temple, only one person could go, and that's the, old, that's the high priest. And it was completely dark, except for the glory of the Lord that was there. And he could only go once a year carrying the blood of, of the atonement into the Holy of Holies on, on the um, Day of Atonement. And so there was a picture that there was some access to God, but it was limited. And the people were somewhat near to God, but they were somewhat distant. And yet... Uh, in now, in the New Covenant, believers have the amazing privilege of being able to enter directly into the Holy of Holies in heaven when they worship. This is something we can't see with our eyes right now, but the book of uh, Hebrews says it's true. Hebrews 10, 19 to 22, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, and that's a literal tra- translation of the Greek Uh, expression there, holy places, it means not only can you go into the holy place where only the high priest could go, you can go right into the holy of holies now. We have have confidence uh, to enter the holy places. This is confidence, this Greek, uh, I think it's parousia, this idea of coming boldly without fear of being condemned or judged. You have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. So it's kind of a mixing of image of the old uh, of the uh, curtain of the temple that separated us from the Holy of Holies. But then uh, it was uh, through his flesh, that is through his sacrifice, that uh, removed that barrier. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, who, who leads us there, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near with a true heart. And this phrase of drawing near is something that's repeated a number of times in Hebrews, encouraging us repeatedly to come into the very presence of God. Draw near, draw near, draw near, draw near, draw near to God. And so uh, when we're in the sanctuary of the church worshiping, we ought to think that we are coming into the presence of God. Now you can't, we forget that because because our eyes don't see the spiritual reality. But if but but occasionally in the Bible, people's eyes were opened to see the spiritual world that was there right around them, like the like Elisha's servant at Dothan, where Elisha said, "Those who are with us are more than those who are with them," and the servant couldn't figure it out. And then Elisha said, "Lord, open his eyes," and all of a sudden he saw they that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire, angelic armies surrounding them, protecting them. It was there all along, but they hadn't seen it. <clears throat> so from time to time, people can see into that spiritual realm. God enables them to do so. And 
if he enables, uh, if he had ever enabled us to do so in Scottsdale Bible Church, I mean, what we would realize is that there is a spiritual reality. So you'd, you'd look over to the right side and there'd be all these saints from the Old Testament, or Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they're with their families, they're there worshiping. And, and, and uh, you'd look over to the left and there would be all your loved ones who have died in the Lord and gone before for generations and generations of faithful people worshiping the Lord. And behind and through the aisles would be all these angels just worshiping and, and, uh, and probably kneeling in the aisles. And then in the front, if, the, if, the, if, uh, if, the, the, if our eyes could be open to see what is really there, we'd see the throne of God and Jesus at the right hand of God and uh, heavenly creatures worshiping before him. And that's what the book of Hebrews is saying happens when we come in worship. But physically, we don't see it with our eyes. But spiritually, it's true. That's where we are. And so we do draw near to God. We delight in him. He delights in us. And then we draw near to him. And I think then we'd just be, we'd be overwhelmed with amazement if we could see that. Uh, so Hebrews 12 says, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom. This is Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, the sound of a trumpet, etc. But you have come to Mount Zion, that's the heavenly Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And, and here's, what, here's what you've come to, the book of Hebrews says. You've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's believers who have died and gone before. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that's the blood of Christ, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. New covenant worship, then, is actually worship in the presence of God. So that's number three. We draw near to God. And then God draws near to us. James 4.8 promises, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I think that's true in private times of prayer and Bible study as we devote ourselves to taking time in God's presence. He manifests his presence to us. I think it's especially true in corporate worship. When we draw near to him, then suddenly we have a sense that he's coming near to us and he's, he's with us. Uh, in Second Chronicles, this <clears throat> came about <clears throat> in a very visible way where the glory of God descended. So when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, the house the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. What cloud is that? It's, it's the glory, the Shekinah glory, the, the glory of God. It's the cloud that surrounds his presence. The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so the priests couldn't stand to minister. Their, their strength just faded out of their, feet, out of their legs and they, they fell to the ground. Because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So God draws near to us. He's enthroned on the praises of Israel, it says in Psalm 22. And then when God draws near to us, what happens? He ministers to us as well. So when we worship God, he meets with us and directly, I think, ministers to our hearts, strengthening our, our souls and our, or our spirits, strengthening our faith, intensifying our awareness of his presence, granting refreshment to our spirits. I, I sense that happening from time to time in, in, uh, in church worship. If, if, if there's a sense of God's presence, there's a sense that something's going on inside here. Lord, you're cleansing, you're strengthening, you're purifying, you're, you're awakening deeper faith in me. 
And that's what should happen. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, let all things be done for building up. And in fact, we draw near to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4, 16, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we do draw near and, and God gives us, uh, I think he gives us more grace. He gives us more of his presence and, and ministers to us. Is that making any sense at all? Do you know what I'm saying? And, and, you know, sometimes it can happen in the car if you've got worship music on. And, and you, you know God's doing something in your heart. Um, but I think it is especially supposed to happen in times of worship. And number six, I think something else, the Lord's enemies flee. And sometimes, um, sometimes uh, demonic uh, opposition or attack just will, will flee from people who are in uh, extended times of worship because they just don't like it there. They want to get out. And, uh, of course, this happened in a physical sense in the Old Testament, Second Chronicles 20, 22. He appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire, and they went before the army. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, and they were routed. And so I think when God's people offer him worship, I think we, ex- we can expect that the Lord will battle against any demonic forces that oppose the gospel and cause them to flee. And I think unbelievers then will know that they are in God's presence. Uh, they'll have a sense of being in the presence of God. I, uh, I mentioned this once before. There was a, a church in California whose pastor I knew, and they had just really wonderful extended times of worship in God's presence, and they captured this sense of what worship is to be like. And, and it, it, it got so much notice that ABC News decided they would do... Uh, they would do... A, a program on what's happening at this church. And um, they came two or three times. And the producer got back to the pastor afterward. He said, Pastor, I can't figure something out. Why does our camera crew always start to cry when they come into your service? Well, I think it was tears of reverence and awe because the presence of the Lord was so evident in that service. Unbelievers know they're in God's presence. And uh, Paul talks about that happening and if, if people prophesy. and uh, He says uh, unbeliever will worship God and declare that God is really among you. But I, I think that can happen in, in other ways as well. So uh, a lot of results of genuine worship. Let me just see how we're doing. Oh, yeah, okay. Is there eternal value to worship? This is such a helpful reminder because, um, you know, we're so concerned about having our priorities right and maximizing our time use and, and accomplishing a number of things every day and crossing things off the list to do. Paul says if you want to be making the best use of the time and wa- walking not as unwise but as wise, make the best use of the time, and you want to not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is, Part of that is singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Making the best use of the time, part of it is spending time in worship. This is a way to use time well. It is doing the will of God. Yes, there are other things we have to do. We need to share the gospel with others. We need to care for our families. We need to uh, care for the poor. We need to take care of our health. There are many things that are good to do, but... Worship is doing the will of God, and as I said, it, it, it is a direct expression of our main purpose for living. So it's eternally valuable. So how, 
how do we do this? And this is kind of some practical things, and here they're kind of personal preferences, I think, but I, I want to talk about some, just some observations about how Christians can enter into genuine worship. First, it is a spiritual activity, and it has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit working within us. And I think that one of the factors involved in worship is, are we spending time with the Lord during the week and even in the day beforehand, in, in that day? And then the people involved in leading worship. I, you know, I had the privilege oh, a couple months ago to meet with the people who are involved in the various worship, leading the various worship ministries here at the church. And I came over and just met with them for lunch. And what I sensed in our conversation together is there are a lot of people involved in worship here at Scottsdale Bible Church who just have a deep heart for God and really, really, really want to do what is right before God and want the Holy Spirit to empower and direct and guide the worship. And I, I'm thankful for that. It has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the hour is coming and now and is now here, said Jesus, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. <clears throat> I think that means in the, in the spiritual realm, in the unseen realm, is where the genuine worship comes. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Truth means, according to the principles of the Bible and teaching the things of the Bible, and worshiping the one true God, in spirit means that there's a spiritual realm, uh, in the spiritual realm of spiritual activity. We've been talking about that. And so unless our spirits are worshiping God, we're not truly worshiping him. Um, that means to have an awareness of what's going on in, our, in the non-physical part of our being and our spirits. An attitude of worship comes on us when we begin to see God as he is and then respond to his presence. Uh, when Jesus stilled the storm... All of a sudden, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. They, they realized that this is the Creator that is with us in the boat, and he's ruling over the creation. And then they worship him because they saw who he was. Hebrews 12, 28 to 29, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Here's the reason. For our God is a consuming fire. We recognize that God is a consuming fire, burning away all sin and all impurity and, and, and everything that rebels against him. And he is one who will judge all of that and ultimately destroy it. Then we have reverence and awe in his presence. And so we see God who he is. And then an attitude of worship comes on us. Um, and the, uh, the uh, seraphim in Acts 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Why? Because they're in God's presence and they're singing in response to this manifestation of God's holiness that is overwhelming, overwhelming them. How can we bring ourselves to experience <clears throat> much more of the depth and richness of worship? Well, if it is a spiritual matter, then the primary solutions to having more genuine worship in our own lives privately and then in other assemblies will be spiritual ones. Prayer and preparation for worship. Teaching, just looking at these verses that we've gone through about the spiritual nature of worship, that it really is coming into God's presence. And I think also making right any broken interpersonal relationships. That is, Paul says when he talks about the church assembling in 1 Timothy 2, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. If, if you've got a quarrel with the person sitting across the aisle from you, of course it's going to be distracting. You're going to say, wait a minute, my relationship isn't right with my brother or my sister. 
and that needs to be made right. So Jesus could say, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, go be reconciled to your brother. And then striving for personal holiness of life. There's a connection between holiness and being near to God. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Or James 4, 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This immediate sentence after, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If God seems far away and worship does not seem meaningful, it could be that there's something that God wants to deal with in your life that needs to be repented of and forgiveness asked. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I do think, however, this is just some closing observations, that the physical setting and structure of worship services also matter. If you are in a worship service where there's a lot of distraction and clutter and noise and everything going on, it's harder to worship. And I think that's why Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. Because it's hard for people to pray when there's all this noise. The animals and making noise and the money changers arguing about the price of a sacrifice and things like that. It really is hindering to worship. So it's right that, that uh, there be some order in the worship service and there be... Uh, uh, peace there. And in fact, Matthew 6, 6, Jesus says, shut the door. Go When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. So there's in private times of worship. That's why driving in a car is sometimes a really good time to, to pray or sing praise to God because nobody else is hearing you. If That is, if your window is rolled up and you're not driving a convertible. Um and it's why in personal times of prayer, if there's any ability at all, if you have any opportunity to have a private place, a place away where you don't have to be thinking about what other people are thinking or hearing or you're just with God, that's really good. And I think it's true in worship too. As in a home fellowship group, I would always draw the blinds so just like people are not, so people are singing and worshiping, they're going like this and people, you're not wondering now, if people are driving by on the street, what are they thinking? Do you know what I mean? It just kind of close the world out and, and let there be some privacy. The atmosphere and mood are important too, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And I, um, I think there, in terms of the sequence of things that happen in a service, um, people in charge of it have to be careful not to quickly go from one thing to another to another to another. And I appreciate it. At Scottsdale Bible Church, we have an extended time of singing, for instance. Not singing a hymn, then a scripture reading, then a responsive reading, then a prayer, then an announcement, then greet your neighbor, then a hymn, then another Bible reading, then another hymn. I, I can't change my attitude of heart that quickly. Do you, am, I making, am I making sense to you? If I'm singing praise to God, I want to let that go on for a time. And then if I'm listening to the sermon, I want to let that go on for a time. Uh, and, I, and I appreciate those blocks of time that are... Not confusion, but of peace. At least that would be my preference. That's the end. That was it. Now, a couple of minutes just to, just to kind of give feedback or interact on that. If you want to. Way over here. Now I've asked your name before and I can't remember. <laughs> Dean. Uh, I had a question about your definition, first off. Yeah. Uh, as a musician in the orchestra, yep. it, it doesn't include that specifically. Is that what you mean by your voices? Yeah. But, but Interpret so, voices to mean instruments, too. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but secondly, uh, one of the things 
uh, I see is that in, in Hebrews 13:15, where it talks about worship being a sacrifice of praise. Yes. And I just think that worship should cost us something. We should be investing in worship, either through our time or something else. And I just think that's a really important thing for me, being there on Wednesday nights and on Sunday mornings. This morning we're not playing, but uh, it's just something that I, it really helps me focus my time. It's good. I, Dean, those are just ex- I wrote down both of those. They, they need to go into my outline. Um, yeah, and I need to mention instruments. I had some verses, but I didn't mention the definition. But surely that's part of worship. And they had the symbols and everything in the Old Testament, and that's when the glory of God came down. Trumpets. And then um, a sacrifice. Yes, a sacrifice of praise. Um, good, yeah. And you know, that, that now when you say that, I'm just thinking, <clears throat> if we have to make a little more effort to get things right in our hearts or or get things there on time, uh-oh, <laughs> uh, so that our heart is right when it's time to start worship, then that's worth it. It's a sacrifice that, that God will honor. Um, and uh, I'm convicted as I speak that I don't always get there right at the time when the worship service starts, but it would be good even to get there a few minutes early, wouldn't it? Because then we can settle and our hearts and our minds can settle, get off the things we were just thinking about, start to focus on the Lord. Good. Good, good. Okay. Edie. Is it Edie? Yes. I see um, Edie. I had a, a, I was thinking about, we were talking about earlier with the clapping. And in the singing, we were worshiping God. And as a congregation, we're all reaching out to him. Yeah. And it's a corporate event. Yeah. Then there's the, the announcements in the sermon, yeah. which is a little more directed at the congregation. Yeah. If we then, when we close in a s- song also, yeah. it seems that that is an appropriate way for the congregation then to respond back. Oh, I like that. And Good. I find that helpful. Good. Okay. <laughs> okay. What else here? Anything? Uh, how about, oh, Diane? Thank you. You touched upon it, Wayne, when you talked about praising in the car, and I only recognized that... Um, probably a couple years ago, mm-hmm. that that counts. Mm-hmm. Where th- there are songs that I know mm-hmm. uh, praising him at that time. And I notice my countenance is very different mm-hmm. when I arrive, when yep. I've listened to that versus maybe talk yep. radio. Yep. Well, that's the choices I have. Do I listen to Hugh Hewitt or do I put on this worship? At different times I do different things. <laughs> well, okay, they're both good, but... But but you're right. The effect on my heart is really. I've been I, somebody put my put me onto this really good worship CD recently, and I've been singing that over and over in the car. 